0: Hello, Freedom House, Central Campus, you guys doing great today? (laughs) Braving the weather to be here in church, I'm so proud of you. You guys look pretty good. Turn to somebody around you and say, you look great today. today. Amen. And and you know the great thing at our church, you can do that, you don't even have to lie. (laughs) Don't even have to lie, y'all look good, y'all look good. Well, it's great to be here with you. My name's Olin Carter, I serve here on our teaching team And if you are new to Freedom House Church, something that is very special, I love about our church, is that we do everything, everything, including the preaching as a team. That means we have a teaching team. So every Sunday, you'll see a different person. So we have multiple campuses, multiple services, but we always have a live human being, a pastor bringing God's word, not a video, nothing wrong with that, but that's just the vision of our pastors, which I love so much. So can we just take a moment, can we give some honor to our senior pastors, pastors Troy and Penny Maxwell. I always like to do that. They don't ask me to do that, but I love them so much because what that means for me, it means I get to do what the thing that I enjoy the most in life. I really um just am so thrilled to do, but it also for you, it means that you have a part to play in the vision here at Freedom House. I, I'm not not just this, everything. You just saw a missions team come up that are gonna go. Twenty-three men that stood up to said, Hey, we're gonna go and we're gonna make a difference, and that's how we operate here at Freedom House Church. So so exciting. And before we jump into God's word today, I do want to take a moment. I want to greet those that are joining us online. We have an amazing online campus. And so we have people tuning in right now from Pennsylvania, North Carolina, South Carolina, Louisiana, Virginia, and Wisconsin. You guys give it up for them? Awesome. We had folks from Peru in the last service. So they're ready. They're ready for the team. And they're fired up. So, well, we're in this great, great series right now. It's called Solid Ground. And it's important because Um, We're going to see today that all of our lives, all of our family lives, we're going to face some storms. It's important that we have a solid foundation. Amen? Amen? And so this series, Solid Ground, is really about not just our personal foundation, but it's about building our family on solid ground. Building our marriages, building our families with our children, how we raise our children. Building that on a solid foundation because we know those storms are going to come. And so let's just jump into God's word. If you have your Bibles today, encourage you to turn there with me. It's Matthew chapter 7. We're going to put it up on the screen for you as well. But this is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. It says, this is Jesus speaking. In verse 24, he says, everyone, say Everyone. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I love when God in his word says, everyone, whosoever, because that means I get to participate. I can't be excluded because he said, everyone, everyone who listens to these words, everyone who does them will be like this wise man who built his house. On the rock. Verse 25, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, different group here, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not obey them, will be like a foolish man who built his house. On the sand. And the same thing happens. Verse 27 And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now, this passage, just a little parable here about the wise man and the foolish man, it ends, it kind of culminates the Sermon on the Mount. What I believe, and I think what most theologians believe, is the greatest sermon ever preached. Starts back in Matthew chapter 5. I encourage you this week, go read it. This month we're in this series here. We're going to be going over a lot of these verses. And Matthew chapter 5, he starts it out. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. And then in this portion of Scripture, you see Jesus bringing it to a close. In John Stott's book on the Sermon on the Mount, he points out that the sermon is focused from start to finish on what he calls Christian counterculture. Christian counterculture. That is, how are we as Christians different from the world? How are we as a follower of Christ... Different, And not just different from someone who's never heard of God, but no, Jesus draws some st- distinctions in the Sermon on the Mount for how his followers are going to be different from the religious leaders, the, the, the common, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the people, the church attenders. He's like, no, 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 I don't want you to be like the traditional religious group. I don't want you to be like the world. I don't want you to be like everyone else. No, I'm calling you to be different. So in this sermon, he lays it out. He lays out how we as followers are going to be different. And he compares two different groups of people that are all there to listen to him teach. And I believe we have both of those groups present in the room today. If Jesus were here, if he were preaching this sermon in the flesh here, he was preaching the sermon on the mount, He would be speaking to the people in this room. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to people that aren't here. He's not talking to people who've never heard him teach. No, he's talking to us. He's talking to the people in the room. He's talking to the believers. And he's drawing a distinction between the people that come and hear him teach. And one half of the people, one part of the people... They do what he says to do. They take it and they apply it. They're obedient to his teaching. But the other group of people, they come and they hear. They come and they sit. They come and they look like a follower, but they don't obey. They don't do anything with it. And man, isn't it hard sometimes to tell the difference, even in the church, between people who are really Christians and people who are just putting on a show? I mean, you got some people that come up in church, man, and they know the right words to say. They know how to dress. They know how to talk. Bless God, I'm highly favored. Man, God is all over. I can feel the spirit of Jesus in this place. I mean, they know what to say. They get the little quiver in their voice. I mean, you know, they they, they know how to put on the show and act the part. They can convince you they love God. But Jesus says there's one thing that will enable you to tell the people apart. There's one thing where you can tell the house that's built on the sand from the house that is built on the rock. Is the storms. Only the storms reveal their true foundation. And it's the same thing in our lives. You can talk the talk all you want, but wait until you get diagnosed with cancer. Wait until you lose your job and you don't have money to pay your bills. Wait until your kids are messed up, hooked on drugs. Are you going to have a firm foundation and talk and walk the same way when the storm hits? Because the storms of life are going to come. This series is all about our families. It's not just about us personally. We need to have a personal foundation on Jesus, right? We need to personally obey and have a firm foundation. But this series we're in, we're talking about our families. We're talking about our marriages. And I believe this same thing applies in our marriages and families. Sometimes in our marriages, things look really good until the storm comes. Until the storm comes. And it, and it causes a reality to, to be revealed of what we really believe. Who we really believe. Now, what makes the difference? Jesus is warning the counterfeit Christian, the fake follower. What is Jesus illustrating when he says, build your house on the rock? I believe building on the rock is a picture of active obedience to Jesus' teaching. Active obedience to Jesus' teaching. It's not enough to come in here. It's not even enough to take notes. I hope you're taking notes today. But those notes are not worth the paper they're written on if you don't do anything with them. If you don't apply it in your life. And I've got some questions today. If you are taking some notes, I'm gonna give you some, some thoughts, some questions, some things to kind of examine your foundations, your family. Am I building my kids? Am I building my marriage on the rock? Well, here are some questions that you can think about. The first one is this. Am I actively applying the principles and values Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in my marriage and my family? Am I actively applying the principles and values that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in my marriage or my family? Because one thing is for sure. Storms are going to come. Storms are going to come, and I'll be honest with you. I've been to Bible college, and I'm a pastor, so you know I read the scriptures a pretty good bit. I I don't know what to tell you. I have no idea why certain storms come when they come. I don't know why is a why is a small storm hitting me now? Why is a big storm hitting me now? I don't know. You're not always going to know. You're not always gonna know when to expect a small storm or when to expect a big storm. I can tell you this, take advantage of the small storms. Because sometimes a small storm will come along and you'll realize, man, I got a little little leak in my roof. I got, I got, a, I got a spot, I got a wet spot on the ceiling. There's, some shingles are missing, something's wrong, right? And take those opportunities to examine your foundation because you don't wanna get hit having a weak foundation when the big storms come. For me and my family over the last couple years, we've had some big storms. My mother and my wife both got diagnosed with cancer in the same year. And when that kind of thing happens, you better have a sure foundation. I watched my wife go through that and model the faith that she's been taught her whole life, but she had a firm foundation that she could stand and say, no, I'm believing God, that God is going to take care of me. Both my mom, just just so you know, those of you that don't know the story, my mom and my wife are cancer free. <laughs> Praise God. But when those storms come, and you're going to face those storms, we have to have our foundation already built. We have to have our foundation already built. So how do we do that? How do we prepare Our marriage. How do we prepare our kids? How do we prepare our lives for the storms that are inevitably going to come? Because I want to make sure you hear this today. This is not storm prevention. Storms are going to come. If you're a parent, your kids are going to do some stuff at some point in your life. And I hate to say it, I used to have hair. (laughs) Your kids will freak you out. Like they're going to do some stuff. Because they're going to get grown at some point. They're going to start making decisions. And listen, when I was a kid, I made some bad decisions. Sometimes they're going to make some bad decisions. Some things are going to happen. Some storms are going to come. So we got to know, I can't prevent every storm. We're a church that believes in the power of God. We believe in healing. We believe in the provision. The, the, God is our provider. We believe that God, we see miracles happen here in our church. But we also understand that if you live long enough, you're going to go through some stuff. I don't care who you are, how spiritual you think you are. There's no prayer you can recite. There's nothing you can do that's going to prevent the storms. Jesus says they're coming. So how do we prepare? The the key is we want to have a strong foundation. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, build a family that is Christ-like. Build a family that is Christ-like. Like Seems like the most obvious and simple thing a Christian would do. I can tell you in church experience, it's the thing we do the least often. Because we focus so much on the outward, we forget Jesus came for the inward. We focus so much on the outward signs of our faith, we forget to be inwardly transformed by our faith. And so let's see what Jesus says here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. He's beginning the Sermon on the Mount. So he starts with the Beatitudes. We're going to read a few of these here. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't have time today to go through the whole thing. There's five other Beatitudes. You can read them later. I encourage you to read through all of this. But the point of this is Jesus begins the sermon by describing the character of the Christian. Not what the Christian does, not the influence the Christian has, but the character of the Christian, how he or she acts, how we Think, how we express, how we do what we do. Not what we do, but how we do what we do. Is reading the Bible with your family, is that a good thing? Yes. Y'all did much better than Lake Norman when I preached this. They were confused at that one. I was like, is reading the Bible good? And they were like, um, I'm like, not a trick question. I hope y'all know this. And they were like, yeah, 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 it's good, it's good. It's good. So y'all are way smarter than Lake Norman. So pat yourselves on the back. But reading the Bible with your family is good. Praying with your kids is good. Bringing your kids to church. We bring our kids to church. We have them involved in the youth ministry here. Is that a good thing? Yes, absolutely. That's a great thing. Wonderful thing. But here's the problem. If we push and push and push to have our kids do all these things but we don't model Christ-like behavior in our home, it's actually counterproductive. If we try to force and pressure our kids to come and learn about a Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, living a way that we never intend to live ourselves, we're actually just teaching our kids that Christianity is about hypocrisy. We're just teaching our kids that it's about the outward, not the inward. And so we have to be committed not to just say we follow Jesus, but to live like Jesus said we should live. We have to model it in front of our kids. Eventually, your spouse and children aren't going to care how many times you go to church, if you pay your tithes, if you serve, how pious you look to other people. What's going to impact them is how you treat them. Biggest things going to impact your kids is for, for a married couple is how you treat your spouse. They're looking at you. They're watching that. And how you treat them is going to be an impact on how they respond to Jesus. You can sum this up very simply. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) Don't be a jerk. There's a lot of Christians that come to church and say all the holy things, all fill the Holy Spirit. And then they get in the car and cuss out their spouse. (laughs) Flip people off, driving home in traffic chew out the person in the drive-thru when they're going to get their food on the way home from church. I was working in the parking lot one Sunday. This was years ago. We used to have the, remember when we had the the other exit up here? And this guy, he was in a Mercedes, I remember, because it was a near-death experience. And I was sitting there, and we wanted everybody to go up and out the the lot where the house is over there. And And I looked at him, and I said, like, no, no, no. This way, this way. And he looked at me with this face like, this guy's not kidding. And he was like, and he floored it. And I'm telling you, I jumped out of the way and he went right by me. I was like, either that dude didn't go in church, (laughs) we didn't do a good job, or he needs a lot more church. Man was going to run me down in the church parking lot. But we can't be that type of Christian and expect our families to be built on the rock. How does Jesus teach this? He starts out, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Christian is called to imitate the posture and the humility of Jesus himself. Here's a question for you. If you want to write this down, am I modeling humility before God for my spouse and for my kids? Am I modeling Am I modeling humility before God for my spouse and for my kids? Humility is not debasing or degrading myself. Humility is not rubbing gravel through my hair. Oh, woe is me. I'm a sinner dog. Oh, I'm just such a bad person. I'm, oh, I'm just so bad. You can't ever receive a compliment. Oh, good job. No, it's not a good job. I'm a terrible person. That's not humility. That doesn't help anybody. Jesus modeled humility. Humility is putting the interests of others before yourself. That's humility. Jesus was the most humble man to ever live, amen? And he said, I'm God. That's not super humble sounding, right? But that's who he was. Being humble is being who God has called you to be hey, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a wife. And then stepping into that role in true humility is serving others, is putting their needs before my needs. Jesus modeled this best. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us there to have the mind of Christ. Why? Because when he had every advantage and privilege as God himself, what did he do? He left heaven came down to earth, took on the form of a servant to serve you and me. Man, that's humility. To put the needs of our family, to put the needs of others before ourselves. His posture was submission and humility before the Father. Do our family members see us modeling the Christ-like posture of submission to God? Do our family members feel like we put their needs before our own? Do we model that? And I'm I'm guilty of this sometimes as a husband. I mean, we're real big to stick our chest out and say, you know, I'd die for my wife. I'd defend my wife when we won't even give her the remote. (laughs) Like we're going to eat where I want to eat. We're going to watch what I want to watch. We're going to do what I want to do. Is that modeling humility like Christ did? Because Christ put the needs of others Before himself, he goes on, blessed are those who mourn. The Christian is called to imitate Jesus' grief and brokenness over sin. Am I taking the sin in my life and the sin and suffering all around me seriously? One theologian said this could be translated happy or the unhappy. He had the same response I did. I think that's crazy. That's not what Jesus is saying because Jesus wasn't unhappy. And we're not called to be unhappy. Keep reading a few more verses down. He tells us to rejoice even when we're persecuted. So we're not supposed to be unhappy, but here's what we are supposed to do. Jesus, it said, would go up and look over the city and weep because the people were lost. Jesus had a broken heart for hurting and lost people. And so often in our society today, We're we're too preoccupied with being right to be compassionate. We have to be led by the heart of God. We need to know what's right. We need to stand up for what's right. But we need to be led, the motivation needs to come out of a heart of love and compassion to reach the lost, to preach the gospel. Here's a question for your family Do we laugh? Do we make light at things that make God cry? Do we laugh at things that make God cry? It's real easy to sit in the church or sit at home as Christians and ridicule and laugh all those crazy, stupid, sinful people out there. But do we love them? Are we weeping at night, broken for our city, for our country? One thing I love about Pastor Gerald, he's on our external board. Um, He's coming later this year, but... Man, every time I hear that man talk, it makes me want to pray. It makes me want to get on my knees for, for the lost because he has a passion for that. Do we model concern and compassion for people? Or are we preoccupied with just our opinion, just being right? What do our kids see in us? Are our kids watching someone that's Christ-like that we, we're we're serious and we're engaged with the suffering in our world in those things we take seriously. Now here's an example from my family. My, my kids, recently I discovered they were watching a lot of Daily Wire. Any of y'all know what Daily Wire is? So they were on YouTube and they were watching a lot of Daily Wire. And it's, it's a lot of like political stuff, a lot of uh, cultural and political stuff, which is, is good. I mean, a lot of it is stuff that is good to learn about. I agree with a lot of the content. But I had to take my kids and sit them down and have a talk with them because I said, listen, I think it's good that you're engaged and you want to know what's going on. But here's the thing. I don't want you to be a conservative that happens to be a Christian. I want you to be a Christian, period, full stop. I want you to be a Christian whose morals, whose politics, whose standards, whose economics, whose everything in your life should flow out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? doesn't mean we don't stand up for what's right, but it means we're concerned for people, not our opinion. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The Christian is called to imitate Jesus's gentle spirit. Am I gentle and kind with my, with my family? Now this one's tough for me. I've got a really bad temper. I gotta, I gotta own this. I've got a very bad temper. Um, I try to keep that guy locked in the dungeon, but every once in a while he, he sneaks out. He picks the lock. And he gets out, and he, and he, you know, <laughs> this crazy face comes up, ah, you know, and I'm having an argument and, you know, my kids do something, my wife says something, it just hits me, you know, ever have somebody just hit the nerve and you're just like, you know, like the Incredible Hulk, you won't like me when I'm angry, <laughs> you know, that's me. I mean, I got a bad temper, bad temper, but I've had to learn, number one, to keep that thing down, let Jesus give me victory over that. But when little moments come out and I get too intense, I get too harsh with my wife, with my kids, I've got to humble myself and I've got to repent. I've got to say as the leader of the family, listen, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I repent to you. I'm, I shouldn't, I, I might've been right in what I said, but the way I said it wasn't right. Here's the key thing we need to understand here. And this is tough for some of us. Some of us that are Kind of alphas and we're leaders and we're people we like to kind of you know get our way. Here's the thing you gotta understand as a Christian, you can't force your way. You can sum that one up with this you can't force your way. Jesus didn't force his way, he confronted sin, he confronted people, he confronted issues, he he were good Lord. I mean, did he confront the religious? I mean, Jesus confronted, but 99% of the time when Jesus confronted people, he confronted with questions and he listened. He was the light that helped them see for themselves. For men in our homes, what does this mean? It means that we can't lead like an authoritarian tyrant barking orders at everyone. You can't just come home, kick the door open and you over there, fix me dinner. What's going on around here? Whoa. Like, number one, if I did that in my home, I'd be, like, ducking. Like, frying pans would be flying at my head. I've said before, there's one reason me and Tammy don't physically fight, and that's because she'd whoop my rear end. Y'all would be getting me out of the hospital. But women want a strong leader in the home. But nobody wants a tyrant. Nobody wants somebody barking orders. And that's not the way Jesus led. He didn't bully. How many of you know Jesus? could have had his way in any situation. When Pilate said, are you the king? I mean, he could have just like levitated. Above. I mean, he could have like crushed everything. He could have bullied and done whatever he wanted, but he didn't. He was gentle. For women, for wives, that means there can't be manipulation or passive aggressive comments. There can't be sarcasm. You've got to be able to deal with your emotions honestly and openly in your relationship. I want to make sure we understand today, this is important, meek is not weak. Meek is not weak. Everybody say it with me. Say, meek is not weak. Meek is not weak. I love this story in the scripture when Peter cuts off the soldier's ear. They're there to arrest Jesus. His guys are behind him. They're like, you know, Jesus, are you, are you him? Yeah, I'm Okay, we got to take you away, man. We, we got orders. We got to take you away. And Peter, out of nowhere, comes around Jesus, takes his sword out, bam, takes the guy's ear right off. I can see Jesus' face. <sighs> Peter, put the sword up, man. I can't, I can't take you anywhere. Put the sword up. Jesus goes on to tell Peter, Do you not think I could call legions of angels down from heaven? Do you think this is a power issue, an aggressiveness issue, Peter? No! Knucklehead, put the sword up! And he tells Peter something that we need to learn for our relationships. Very important. He tells Peter, he says, listen, if you draw that sword, you'll die by that sword. And in our relationships, if you want to draw the sword of domination, of manipulation, of sarcasm, listen, you'll die by that sword. If that's the way you wanna get your way, listen, you might win sometimes. Sometimes you might get to do what you wanna do. Go to the restaurants you wanna to go to, but you're gonna pay for it. That's the way your whole relationship is gonna to have to go, and there's a better way. Can I get an amen? Jesus' way is better. You can't argue and manipulate people in your family, even though sometimes you might win. So really, what is meekness? How, what's a picture of meekness? It's gentleness. It's power under control. It's great power under control. Now, I am a great example of how this is, doesn't work. I'm not gentle, okay? So if I'm fixing something in my garage, I, man, after about five minutes and it's not working, I'm trying to fit it or turn it or whatever, after a few minutes, I just get, I'm like, dead gum thing. Good God, I break it and throw it on the ground and stomp on it. And then I go, I gotta go to Lowe's, (laughs) right? Because I broke the thing. Because in my frustration, I wasn't gentle. Gentleness is the ability to apply power with great control, is I can use the authority God has given me, but I can do it without crushing others. I can do it in a way that's helpful, that's precise, that's beneficial. Think about Jesus and how he had all the power of heaven, but how did he apply it? He applied it in a way that didn't crush people's spirits, but he transformed their hearts. Man, what gentleness. Now, there's five others here as well. I don't have time to cover them, I'm going to summarize the rest of the Beatitudes so we can move on. And don't feel like you got to write this down. They put this on YouTube, so you can go back and listen to it later. But here's the Beatitudes summed up. The Christian is humble and kind, doesn't laugh at things that that make God cry. We We don't force our way. We listen. We desire the spiritual more than the earthly, and we treat others the way God has treated us. We aren't self-righteous or legalistic. Our motivation comes from what God has put in our hearts. We rejoice even in persecution because we never lose hope. If we modeled that kind of character, don't you think that would attract people to the one who made us that way? That's the type of character that Jesus is saying we need to have. All right, let's move on. Number two, we need to build a family that's Christ-centered. Number one, build a family that's Christ-like. Number two, we need to build a family that is Christ-centered. Matthew 6, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Very familiar passage you know what billionaires talk about at dinner parties? The same thing you do. They talk about their family. Now, maybe they take trips you don't take, maybe they fly on a you know Gulf Stream or something you know, like that, but they talk about the same stuff. They worry about the same stuff. They tell stories about their kids, their grandkids, they brag. Oh, little, you know, little Johnny just got accepted to this, and and and, and so-and-so's doing this. And, And and they tell stories about their kids and their families. That's their focus. But man, do they worry? Because listen, if you're a billionaire and your wife just got diagnosed with terminal cancer, what is that billion dollars going to do for you? Not a whole lot. If you're a billionaire and your grandkid just got hooked on cocaine, what is that billion dollars going to do for you? Not a whole lot. So they worry about the same things we Worry about, and as people, we all worry. And if we're parents, we definitely worry. We worry about our kids. But why do we worry? Jesus tells us right here in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us anxiety and worry come from having the wrong priorities. Anxiety and worry come from having the wrong priorities. Now, how does this relate to our family? What is the priority in your family life? Are you single and desiring marriage? Put God first. How do you do that? You put God first by focusing on your service to his kingdom. And listen to this God will guide you to the right spouse, and they won't be crazy. Isn't that a blessing? I used to be a youth pastor. People would ask me, what's the key to having a long and happy marriage? Don't marry a crazy person. (laughs) Step number one, don't marry a crazy person. If you will put God first, and listen, it's a lot easier to serve God when you're single, when you're young, than when you're married, have a bunch of kids, and you have a million responsibilities. It gets a lot harder. Can I get an amen, parents? Because there's a billion things to do. There's a billion things going on. There's always a ball game, a cheerleading thing. There's always stuff to do. It's a lot harder to just go on a mission trip, serve God. So take advantage of your singleness. There's nothing wrong with being single. And too often, we're so focused on pursuing the thing we don't have, we forget to steward the thing God's already given us. See, God's given you singleness. You need to steward it. You need to protect it. You need to use it for the kingdom of God. Are you married and dreaming about kids? Put God first. How do you do that? By focusing on having a Christ-centered marriage. And God will bless you with children. God will bless you with children, either physical or spiritual or both. And I'll tell you a little secret that I've learned over many years. Sometimes people have a hard time getting pregnant. There's some fertility issues. And man, this is a scary leap to take, but I've seen it work a million times. You wanna get pregnant, the thing to do, go adopt a kid. You would Every friend I've had that's adopted because they couldn't get pregnant, literally the week after that, they got pregnant. <laughs> have y'all seen that before? It is uncanny. But God will bless you. And we believe that. And we've seen so many miracles where people were struggling to get pregnant. And then, man, God did a miracle. God will bless you. But put, put what you have now in your focus. Put God first in your marriage. Are you parents and worrying about your kid's future? Amen? That's all of us. If you're breathing and you got kids, you're probably worrying about your kid's future. Put God first by making your children's spiritual life more important than their academic or athletic life. So many times as parents, we want to live vicariously through our kids. And listen, our kids are smart, and they know when you're pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, because if they get accepted to Harvard, it makes you look really good. That's hard to hear as a parent, but you want to build your family, you want to build your kids on a solid foundation? Prioritize their relationship with God. Prioritize that time with Jesus. Prioritize church over going to the ballgame. Prioritize those things with your kids, and I promise you, God will add the rest. When we prioritize the kingdom in our family, God takes care of that rest. He provides for our needs. What does he say in that verse? He says, put the kingdom first. And he says, and I'll give you all the stuff. I'll add the stuff if you'll put the kingdom first. So we need a family. We need to build a family that is Christ-like. Number two, we need to build a family that is Christ-centered. And number three, we need to build a family that is Christ-dependent. We need to build a family that is Christ-dependent. Matthew 6, verses five through six, it says, and when You pray. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, he says, But when you pray, you're expected to pray. Prayer for the Christian is like breathing, it's like Eating, it's like sleeping, it's a requirement. He says, when you pray, he doesn't tell you you need to pray. No, he expects that you're praying. You're expected to pray, he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this one is tough for me. And recently, I gotta be honest, God has been kicking my rear end about this one. Because I am very self-reliant. And the Lord's been showing me that nine times out of ten when I have a problem, the answer usually starts with me. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to stay later. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to push through. I'm going to get some help. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to talk to so-and-so. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's always focused on me. The Lord has been showing me, listen, if you're always the answer, if you don't have any limits, you don't need me. There's no room for God in this equation. And so God has been really dealing with me for that. I've left no room for dependence on my father because I'm trying to figure it out myself. Anybody else in here ever guilty of this one? We've got to build families that are dependent on God. Now, what does that look like for us as a family? It means we need to get together and talk about goals together as a family and acknowledge our limits. This Peru mission trip, maybe some of you in here wanted to go and you thought, man, I just don't have the money. The next mission trip that comes up, talk about it as a family and say, hey, I want to go or we want to go on this mission trip, but we don't have the money. Great. Acknowledge your limitation and then talk to God about it. Take it to God with your kids. Your kids need a new car, they're turning 16. Maybe they want to get into a better school and you're like, man, I'd love to send my kids to Freedom Academy or I'd love to send my kids to this private school, whatever it may be, but we just can't afford it. Get your kids together, acknowledge your limits, and then invite God to do a miracle. How great would the foundation be for our kids if our children were raised seeing mom and dad Take our limitations to God and watching God do miracles in our life. How great would the foundations of our kids be when they get to college and people start trying to talk them out of their faith? Oh, that stuff in the Bible, that's just a myth. That never happened. And they say, Well, listen, I don't know where you're getting that from, but I've witnessed God move in my family's life. Let me tell you about the time we didn't have enough money to do this and God provided. Let me tell you about the time my mom got sick and we prayed and God healed her. Let me tell you about the time when your kids grow up in a home that has demonstrated dependence on God. They've got a sure foundation. Not built on theories and and, and what I learned in church today. No, it's we as a family depend on God. And Jesus tells us here about our prayer life that our motivation for our prayer is tied to our reward for our prayer. So if we're praying just because we're supposed to, praying just because everybody says we should, praying so people think I pray, there's no reward. But if I go to God, if I pray because there is no other way, if I pray because prayer is like breathing, if I pray because I have to, if I pray because there's desperation, and I model that for my kids, God says, hey, the father who is in secret, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you. And don't you know that part of that reward is going to be your family? Don't think that you're going to give up your whole life serving God, raising your kids for God, and then your kids are going to go get messed up and in trouble, and God is not going to help you. And part of the promise of serving God is your children your family, don't ever give up on that because God will honor your obedience to him. Man, somebody in here, I want to ask you to bow your heads. Somebody in here needs this right now. Man, I just felt the spirit of God so strong on that. There's some of you in here right now and you feel like you've served God, you've sacrificed for the kingdom and it's cost you your kids. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Let me tell you right now, your kids are going to be your greatest legacy. I'm telling you right now, you're going to take what you've heard today. We're going to pray this by faith. There's going to be changes in your family. And I'm telling you by the spirit of the living God, your children are going to be your greatest legacy. You have not lost your children. Your children are going to serve the most high God. I don't know who this is speaking to today, but I'm going to ask everybody, just stand on your feet right now. Man, there's people in here that need this right now. And God, the Spirit of God is here for you. Man, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And no man is ever going to stand before God and say, I outgave you, God. God. God, I sacrificed for you. I did this for you and it cost me everything. Listen, no man, God is not gonna owe a man a thing. He is faithful. And if you have put God first, let me encourage you today. God is gonna rescue your kids. God's gonna rescue your kids. He's gonna bring change in the life of your kids. I don't know who this is for today, but if that's you right now, just lift your hands up to heaven. Just lift your hands up right now. We're just gonna pray right now. God, we just thank you. God, you're drawing children, God, that have turned away. You're drawing them back into the house. God, we thank you, Father God. It is going to be a testimony beyond all testimonies, God. God, we are going to just uh, celebrate like never before. When testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony comes of children, that we thought had turned away. We thought they were in the world. We thought they had turned from God and they are going to come home in the name of Jesus. God, we receive this right now by faith. God, we thank you, Father God, that we can just put our families in your hands. And we know storms are going to come. Some of us are in the storms right now. We're dealing with the storms, God, but we thank you that our foundation is in you. And God, the house is not going to fall. We thank you for miracles. We thank you for signs, wonders, and miracles. God, to call them back home. God, we thank you for it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, while every head is bowed, every eye is closed. We never, ever, ever end a service without giving you an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I just felt that so strong. I had to share that because I knew there were some people and the Holy Spirit was speaking. But maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never put your heart in his hands. You've never acknowledged him as the Lord of your life. Today is the day. You feel him pulling on your heart right now. You feel something inside of you. You're like, I've never felt this before. That's just God pulling you. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And the thing that blocks that is our sin. But here's the good news. Jesus paid the price for your sin. You could never do enough to wash it away anyway, but Jesus paid in full. He died on the cross so you could have eternal life. And if that's you today, if you're watching online and you want to take part in this, We want to invite you right now. There's a button in the chat. You can click. We have people that will pray for you. But if you're here today and that's you and you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life right now, I want to ask you to be bold and I want you to raise your hand up right now. We're going to say a simple prayer. We're going to say a simple prayer by faith. Amen. Amen. I see that hand. I see that hand. Amen. Just lift your hand up now. Just be bold. Just do it by faith. Don't worry about if people are looking around. This is about you and God. Amen. We're going to pray this prayer together right now. And I'm going to ask everybody to join in with me. Just pray this loud enough where you can hear the words come out of your own mouth. Just say these words by faith. Say, Father God, I believe. I believe in you. I believe in Jesus. Jesus came. He died for me. He rose again. He has all power. He can change me. And I ask you right now, to make me new, forgive my sins, make me a new creation and I will serve you all the days of my life. Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. It is mine in Jesus name. Amen.